following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Praise the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful truth in those songs. And aren't you thankful that God is in control and He's faithful? And uh, praise the Lord for that. Second Peter chapter 3 today. And uh, it's been a while since we've been in Second Peter. It's been uh, four weeks now. Uh, so February 7th was the last time we were here. And so uh, before we read the passage, I, I just want to take a moment to review uh, where we are in the book and uh, give us some context. So uh, hopefully you recall way back before uh, the new year, we were in chapter 1. And uh, we, in chapter 1 of Second Peter, just a rich, wonderful, practical section of Scripture. So Peter reviews the, the, the wonder of the gospel and all that Christ did for us, the new life that we have, the blessings are ours. He talks as well at the end of the chapter about the trustworthiness of God's Word, that it is inspired, it's from God, and because of those things we should pursue godliness and prepare for an abundant entrance into the kingdom of our God. But of course then he turns around and, and after of the New Year's, we jumped into chapter 2, and chapter 2 has a little bit different flavor to it. Now, Peter uh, goes after these false teachers, and, and really all of chapter 2 is dedicated to a stinging critique of the false teachers influencing the church, and, and, and Peter uh, talks about their sin, their wickedness, and, and really about the harsh judgment that God has waiting for, for these false teachers. And so today, uh, we're going to start into chapter 3, and Lord willing, over the next four weeks, we'll uh, finish out this book. And, uh, and Peter here is not quite done confronting these false teachers. And, and so in chapter 3, he, he gets around, actually for the first time, to truly refuting their doctrinal claims. So specifically, uh, Peter here is going to confront their, their foundational belief which is that Jesus is not coming back and He will not judge the world. And in response, Peter is going to explain fundamentally why we know that Jesus is coming again and what it's going to look like when He comes. So, so this chapter is a very important chapter as it concerns our doctrine of the last things, what we oftentimes call eschatology. But of course, Peter is not just giving an, a theological expose. Uh, this chapter is also, uh, well, Peter's pastoral heart bleeds through everything he says. So he opens chapter 3 by calling his readers beloved. And, and he repeats that, that title four times. Verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, and verse 17. So he loves these people and he is concerned for their souls. And because of that, uh, he doesn't just fight for a right view of end times. He's also fighting for their hearts. Because theology always affects how we think and how we live. So, so this chapter is really a beautiful mix of theology and pastoral exhortation. And that begins with our text for today, verses 1-7. through seven. So let's go ahead and read uh, what Peter says. He says in verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in which in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For by this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now this passage divides pretty naturally into three sections. So so verses 1 and 2. Uh, uh, first of all, give a pastoral exhortation to remember God's Word. So, so remember what God told you in the Scriptures. Then verses 3 and 4 articulate the, the false doctrine of the false teachers. And so Peter challenges us to expect false doctrine. And then finally, verses 5 through 7 refute those claims and challenge us to expect God's judgment. So, so let's begin in verses 1 and 2 where Peter challenges us to remember God's Word. Now, now it's important when we come to these verses that, that we read them in context, right? With all of Scripture, we need to do that. And so specifically here, uh, verses 3 and 4 say that the false teachers denied the reality of the second coming. So, so that shapes everything that Peter is saying. And, and, and so they claimed that not only that Jesus is not coming, but He is not going to judge. And, and because of that, they felt free, as he says, to walk according to their own lusts. So in verses 1 and 2, Peter responds by, by, by challenging us to, to go to Scripture. Because he knew that the only anchor with which we can resist false doctrine and every temptation is to go to God's Word. So, so notice how he describes the nature of Scripture in verse 2. He says again, uh, that the, that the, you, he says, you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, I think it's, it's, it's worth emphasizing that, that, again, chapter 2 is all about what's wrong with the, with the false teachers, and he frames chapter 2 with God's Word. So, so he ended chapter 1. You might remember he talks about how holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, so he ended chapter 1 by, by bringing us to the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture. He talks about the false teachers, and then he comes right back to the nature of God's Word. And he does that because he wants his readers to stand on God's inspired revelation and not be swayed. So folks, Scripture is the ultimate medicine against false doctrine and every other temptation of Satan. So first of all, Peter urges us to be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets. Now, now since the prophets here are set alongside the apostles, uh, we should assume that he is specifically thinking here of the Old Testament prophets and really of the Old Testament in general. And his main point, his main point here is that the doctrine of the second coming the doctrine of final judgment is not some recent invention. You know, there's probably people that, that claim that the apostles just kind of sucked this out of their thumb. 
But, but Peter says, no. This, this doctrine is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. I just finished reading through Ezekiel in my uh, morning devotions. And, and, the, and the book of Ezekiel is, is, is grounded, it's rooted in that hope that, that God is going to, uh, that the Messiah is going to come again someday and judge the world. And of course that, that hope is fundamental not just to Ezekiel, but to the entire Old Testament. And folks, the, the, the fundamental reasons that Israel served God, obeyed His will, hoped in the promises of Scripture was because God said that He is going to come and judge. So Peter urges his readers to be mindful of this rich biblical tradition and do not be moved off that foundation. And then second, he urges them to be mindful of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, now I need to mention here that there's a little bit of, well, the Greek here is a little bit vague, uh, but it seems like the best way to understand this is it is probably represented in the NASB, which says, uh, be mindful of the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So, so the idea is, is that Jesus gave the commandment and the apostles spoke it or, or they conveyed it to us in Scripture. And, 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 and I do think it's, as a side note here, I think it's interesting how Peter sets that up. Because I don't know about you, but, but I think I've, I've oftentimes thought that a lot of what you know, Peter, Paul, John, and the other apostles taught and preached, that a lot of it were things that they developed after Jesus ascended to heaven. You know, they kind of put stuff together and, and developed their theology. But I think it's interesting that Peter here says very clearly, he, he grounds the fundamental things that he preached and taught in the words of Jesus. And he's, not, he's saying, you know, we didn't make this stuff up. We simply conveyed to you what the Savior taught us when He was on earth. And, and so certainly, of course, I mean, it's also true that, that they, their theology and their understanding of the Gospel continue to develop. But folks, the New Testament is rooted in the words and teachings of Jesus. It is authoritative. And therefore, Peter urges us to remember the apostolic commandment. And again here, the, the, the primary focus of the passage is on our, the promise of the second coming of Christ. But, but he uses the word here, commandment. And that word for commandment, always in the New Testament, uh, refers to some type of exhortation. So, so Peter here is especially thinking, you know, not so much about Jesus' prophecies about his second coming, but about his exhortations regarding how I should live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. You know, so for example, a couple years ago, I preached through the Olivet Discourse. And, and, and Jesus said a lot in the Olivet Discourse about the fact that He is coming again and, and what that's going to look like. But He also spent a lot of time in that discourse talking about the fact that we need to be ready. That, that we need to prepare and and he teaches that in the parable of the, of the talents and the parable of the ten virgins and so forth. So, so Peter here is saying, not only do we need to know what's coming, but we need to be mindful of what Jesus said regarding our preparation. So, so verses 1 and 2 urge us to remember God's promises about the future and to obey His commands about how we should prepare. So Peter says in verse 1, 
He says, I write to you this second epistle. Which probably, the first epistle, would, was probably a reference to 1 Peter. Although it's possible he's thinking of some other letter that he wrote to these churches, uh, which has been lost. But he says to them, I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you again. Be mindful of what, of what the Scriptures teach. So, so Peter says, stay anchored to God's Word. Remember what it says. Now the question then is, how do you do that? Well, well, first of all, if you're going to be mindful of what God says in His Word, to actually know what God's Word says. And I think what's particularly challenging about this is that He just said, be mindful of the prophets. You know, so if you're doing your yearly Bible reading plan, how many of us have ever been tempted to kind of skip over sections of Ezekiel? Or, or Obadiah? Or, or some of those things. You're like, this is just confusing. It doesn't seem to be relevant at all. But Peter says that you need to be mindful of those Old Testament prophecies about my second coming because they are foundational to your view of the future. So so know what all of Scripture teaches. But not just that, Peter wanted the truth of Scripture, he says here, to stir up in them pure minds. So he wanted it to dramatically shape how they thought about life, their affections, and their actions. And of course, that requires that, that you do more than just know some facts about the end times way back in the, in the back of your brain. No, Peter, won, Peter wanted them to keep the second coming of Christ and His judgment of the world at the front of their minds so that it changed how they lived. And folks, that's what we all need. We don't just need to know what the Scripture says. We need it to reshape everything about us. And Peter here sets the example that that requires lots of reminders. And in fact, you already talked about that in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I did a whole sermon on the ministry of reminding. And, and he says it again. I've told you this before, but the fact that you've heard it once doesn't mean that you, need to hear it, you don't need to hear it again. And again... And again, and again. So, so folks, it is so essential, it is so foundational to your spiritual health that, that you are constantly coming back to basic truths about who God is, what He has done for you in Christ, about the hope of eternity and, 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 and where your true value lies. Be mindful of those things. And, and not just that, you know, Peter sets an example here that one of the most important ministries that you can have to your brothers and sisters in Christ is to remind them of these things. You know, to, so you're with a brother or sister in Christ and, and they're griping and complaining about this or that. Or they're discouraged about this or that. Or, or you can see their, their, their heart is beginning to drift from, from, from a focus on God's purpose and God's will. We need to always be stirring each other up by way of reminder. And, and, and that doesn't take a title. That doesn't take great training. We can just daily help each other remember God is on the throne. God is at work. You're safe in Christ. All those things. So, so remember God's Word. And then verses 3 and 4 follow by telling us why that is so important. So the second major challenge is expect false doctrine. Expect false doctrine. So let's read uh, verses 3 and 4 again. It says, 
knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, now again, this is the first time that Peter actually comes out and articulates of the theology of these false teachers. And he says here that they scoffed, or, or you could say they mocked, at the promise of His coming. So they did not believe that Jesus is coming again to judge the world. And, uh, and notice that, that, they, that Peter mentions two arguments that they made as to why they did not think Jesus is coming back to judge the world. So first of all, he asked the que- they asked the question there in verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? So, so at this point, when Peter writes, it's probably been about 30 years since Jesus ascended up to heaven. And these guys said, where is he? He's been gone for 30 years. He's not coming back. That's a bunch of hogwash. Now, of course, we're approaching 2,000 years at this point. And next week, Lord willing, when we get into verses 8, and 8 through 10, we'll see Peter's answer to the delay of Christ's return. But then the second argument that they make is one that is incredibly relevant for, for life today. Their second argument was all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, so in other words, you know, when you think about the second coming of Christ, the way the Scriptures describe it, they describe the second coming of Christ as a dramatic divine intervention in the world. And it's almost unimaginable, right? I mean, have you ever read through Revelation and you're trying to imagine these things taking place, and it's so overwhelming that it's almost like, I don't know if that could happen. I mean, that's incredible stuff. And so, and so because of that, these guys claimed, that's not how the world works. I mean, all that stuff, all those prophecies about the future, those things can't possibly happen because all things have continued as they are since the fathers. Probably they're uh, talking about the patriarchs. So, so they believed that the world is not governed by divine intervention, but instead by natural laws that govern the universe. And because all things have continued so long as they are by natural laws, they're just going to continue that way on in for who knows how long. So, so I want to be clear, it's not that these guys denied the existence of God. And it's not even that they denied at least some level of divine intervention in the world. They probably believed that Jesus really did come to earth. They, they called themselves Christians. But what set them apart from the true gospel is that they, they believe that while God is true and God is real, He is not significantly involved in my life. There are no drastic divine interventions in the world. So, so for the most part, I'm the master of my fate. I am my own God. I can basically set the course of my life, do what I want to do, and, and God's not going to do anything about it. Doesn't that sound like a lot of people in our day? I mean, they, they would claim that there's a God out there in the sky somewhere. They believe He's real. And they believe that when they really need something, that, that He kind of helps them out and comes alongside and makes them feel good about themselves. But they don't really believe that God is sovereign over life. They don't really believe that they will be held accountable to Him. And, and, and as a result, 
this led to, to drastic problems in, in these false teachers. We notice, first of all, that it led to pride. He says there in verse 3 that they scoffed at, at the promise of His coming. So, so you know, these guys, you, you, can, you can imagine, and we can imagine this today, all the snobbish intellects of our culture. Second coming of Christ, judgment of the world, that can't possibly ever happen. So they were proud. Second, verse 3 says that their, their theology produced moral perversion. It says they were walking according to their own lusts. And, and we talked about that repeatedly in chapter 2, that, that they used their denial of divine judgment as license for all sorts of perversion. Because, hey, if God's not coming to judge, what's to stop me from doing whatever I want to do? And then third, uh, this led to prejudice in their viewpoints. I mean, notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 5. He says, for this they willfully forget. You know, and that's, that's so true that, that so often it's not so much that ideas have consequences as much as it is that consequences have ideas. You know, most of the people that I've met over the years that have uh, rejected the truth of Scripture, it, it's not so much that, that, that they you know, had this unbiased, rational, logical, scientific journey away from believing the truth of Scripture. It's that they didn't want to do what God says. Or they didn't want to obey what Scripture teaches. And, and so they created a reality that fit the narrative that they wanted to believe and rejected the truth of God's Word. And so bias drives them to willfully ignore the truth and go their own way. And, and I think it's worth mentioning that, that that tendency is not just there in unbelievers. It's there in all of us. That, that, that when Scripture rubs up against what we want to think and do, we are very good at finding ways to manipulate our way around what God's Word teaches to get where we want to go. And so we need to be careful not to willfully forget what the Scriptures teach. And, and, so, and so these guys, they, their, their rejection of the truth was leading to all sorts of problems. And Peter responds here in verse 3 by saying that we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Because God said it was going to happen. I mean, God said that, that people would reject the truth. And so the Old Testament prophets confronted many false prophets during their day. And Jesus also warned that false prophets would come. So in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So, so Peter says we shouldn't be surprised when, when false doctrine comes up. When there are adversaries to the truth. Because God told us that's the way it was going to be. And because of that, all the more, that's all the more reason why we need to heed the challenge of verses 1 and 2 and, and constantly live in the Word. Because the more that God's Word is stirring up in you a pure mind, as Peter says the better equipped you're going to be to identify false thinking and to flee from it. So stay anchored in God's Word. So, so remember, first challenge, remember God's Word. Second challenge, expect false doctrine. Third challenge is expect God's judgment. 
Expect God's judgment of the world, you could say. And in verses 5 through 7, Peter mounts three arguments regarding why we know that Jesus will come again and judge. So, so again, the false teacher said, all things continue on as they are. God's not going to come to judge. So, so Peter's going to respond with three arguments. First is, is that God created the world. God created the world. So, so look at verse 5 again. He says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. So this verse makes a profound but, but relatively simple argument in, in response to these false teachers. So, so remember that, that the false teachers believed that the universe is solely governed by natural laws. And, and, and God is not deeply involved in, in this world. So Peter responds, well, the problem with that is creation. When you say God is not involved, well, what about everything that exists? And he says that natural laws did not create all of this. God did. And that is the ultimate divine intervention. So, so creation screams of the fact that natural laws alone do not govern the universe. And it's also worth noting that Peter makes this point by drawing very specifically on the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. So, so despite the claims of many people today that Genesis 1 and 2 are, are just uh, a fable or, or a metaphor for some type of theistic evolution, Peter assumes that Genesis 1 is literal history. So, so notice that Peter says in verse 5 that by the word of God the heavens were of old. What does Genesis 1 verse 1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so Peter believed that God created by His Word. He, he didn't believe that, that, a, that a just random, naturally occurring Big Bang made everything that exists. He assumed that this world exists by the spoken Word of God. And notice also uh, in, uh, that he goes on to say that... Um, that the earth standing out of water and in the water. So, so Peter assumes that, that the earth was originally covered by water, just like Genesis 1 teaches. So Genesis 1, 9 and 10 describe a day 2 of creation, which sa- it says, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, And the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So so Peter assumed that 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 was literally so. And and that the dry ground that's all around us is again not the result of billions of years of natural causes. But instead by the divine hand of God. Now, Now I should mention that there's some question about how to understand that last phrase in verse 6 in the water. So, so the New King James uh, seems to take it as if Peter is simply saying that the land was in the midst of the water. So, so you've got the water above the earth in the firmament, the water below the earth underground, and that the land was in the midst of it. I think it's probably more likely that the, well, the preposition here normally indicates uh, though causation or, or instrumentality. So prob- Peter probably means that God used the ocean waters to help form the dry ground 
which of course is the case, and, and you can see evidence of that all around. But regardless, I do just want to pause and emphasize that, that the Bible is very clear about the origins of the universe. And, and yes, I know that, that there's lots of pressure in our day to abandon what the Scriptures teach about creation. Or to try and explain away Genesis 1 and 2 as, as fable and myth or, or some sort of, of crazy literary technique. But, but folks, we need to stand on what God's Word teaches. God's Word is true and it is reliable and it's faithful. You know, and if you're sitting there today and, and, and you're like, yeah, but I hear these things and I don't know how to answer them. I don't know how to respond to the the arguments that are made in our day against God's Word, then, then we'd love to have a conversation and point you to resources that are out there that talk about the creation of the world because, because Christian scientists have done a lot of really good work uh, to explain why we, why, how the evidence really does fit what the Scriptures teach. And, and then returning to Peter's main point, Peter's main point is that creation clearly demonstrates that this world is not solely the result of naturalistic causes. You know, someone says God is just distant and far. He's not involved in creation. Well, Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. So, so, so everything around us screams of the fact that God intervenes and that He is involved in the world. And by the way, the Bible tells us very clearly that everyone knows that. I mean, everyone, if they're really honest with themselves, looks at creation and knows that this is not the result of random, naturalistic laws. That there is a divine hand behind it all. They simply choose, as Peter says, to willfully forget that truth. So, so the first argument as to why we know Jesus is coming again is because God created the world. That is the ultimate divine and then the second argument as to why we know he's coming again is that God destroyed the world once. So look at what he says in verse 6. By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So, so this verse refers, of course, to the worldwide flood of Noah's day. And, and so ironically, Peter says that the same water that God used to, to form the dry land, he later used to destroy the world. And by the way, Peter did not think that the flood was some local, natural freak event. No, he says there that, that the world was flooded with water. That, that the verb that's translated there, flood, is the verb cataclyzo. We get our word cataclysm from it. So Peter assumed that this was a cataclysmic deluge that, that, that wiped out the world. So, so again... Peter believed that Genesis 6 through 8 are also literally true. And again, lots of people today are going to mock that, right? I mean, they're going to look at the story of the flood and they're going to say, that could never happen. I mean, how in the world could, could water explode out of the earth and fall from the sky and flood uh, and cover even the highest mountain in the world? And, and we would agree. Natural causes are never going to make that happen. But that's okay. Because it wasn't natural causes. God caused this to happen. And by the way, you know, I'll say again that the evidence for the flood is everywhere around us. There's evidence everywhere 
that, that, that even this, this dry desert was once radically shaped by water, right? In the various canyons around, and, and there's clear evidence of, of major water movement. I was watching a, a thing on a National Geographic a while back on the Grand Canyon. And it was very interesting that, that, that they mentioned in, in, that, in that documentary that you know, it was long held that the Colorado River formed the Grand Canyon over massive periods of time. And they said it's becoming increasingly apparent that the Grand Canyon was instead formed rapidly by water coming from various directions. Now, of course, they don't turn around and say, you know what the Scriptures teach about that. But the evidence is everywhere. That God's Word is true. And, and so the reason people reject God's Word is not because ultimately of evidence. It is their bias that the only explanation has to be naturalism. So, so in sum, though, Peter says that the flood is strong evidence that all things do not continue as they were at the beginning of creation. That instead, by God's Word, at one point in history, He powerfully interrupted the natural flow of creation and He flooded the world. I mean, that is quite the divine intervention. And in particular, and if He did that once, He can do it again. And in particular, what's, what's very important is the fact that in doing so, God judged humanity. I mean, think about the fact that, that God wiped out every human being from the face of the earth, save for eight people. I mean, that is a stunning display of God's hatred of sin and of God's power to judge sin. You know, so if I ever begin to think, ah, I can do what I want, nothing's going to happen, God doesn't care, God's not involved. Well, all I have to do is look back at the flood. And the flood is a stunning display of, of God's hatred of sin and of the fact that God judges sin. It tells us everything that we need to know about those realities. And it tells us that God is very active in His creation. So that's quite the argument uh, that Peter mounts. And then the third argument he makes is in verse 7, which teaches that God will destroy the world again. God will destroy the world again. So he says in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now notice there that Peter does not teach that natural laws sustain the universe. Of course, God uses natural laws, but he says ultimately, he says ultimately, the heavens and earth are preserved by the same word. So the same word that created the universe, he says today sustains the universe. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, so no matter what the false teachers of, of Peter's day or the atheists of our day may claim, natural laws do not govern the universe. God does. But God will not preserve this universe forever. Peter reminds us that one day God will destroy his original creation. And considering what we know today about the size of the universe, the massive galaxies that are you know, light years away, 
I mean, this is going to be a divine intervention unlike anything we can possibly imagine. God one day is going to gloriously interrupt natural laws and He is going to destroy this universe. It's a sobering thought to consider. But what is particularly significant is is not just that God is going to do this to all of the stuff out there. Notice at the end of verse 7, He says uh, that He is going to he is preserving it for the day of judgment, and then notice the and the perdition, or you could also say destruction, of ungodly men. So God is going to judge humanity. Now, now I want to be clear here that, that he is not saying uh, that he is going to annihilate ungodly men. Now, Jesus was clear uh, that, that, that those who do not receive the gospel will face God's wrath in hell for all of eternity. So so God is going to judge. And those who do not receive Christ will forever endure God's just judgment for rebelling against Him. So God is going to judge. And, And of course, that fact changes everything, right? I mean, if God is going to be judge and all of us are going to be held accountable someday to Him, Well, that means I can't do whatever I want without consequence. It means that if I just go through life doing my own thing, going my own way, without any concern or care, it's going to end very poorly for me. Peter is teaching us here that the the reality of the coming judgment should dramatically shape how I think about life. Dramatically shape my values and, and everything about me. So so if there's anyone here today who has never believed on Christ for salvation, then then I would urge you to to not just ignore what this passage says. It's it's easy. It is very easy to just, you know, judgment is bad. I don't want to think about it. I I, I just want to pretend like everything is going to turn out well and I'm going to do my own thing. But that is not true. God is very clear. That someday you will stand in the presence of the Lord and you will give an account of every deed you have done or not done. And and, and the Scriptures are clear that you will not stand in that day in your own righteousness. If you try to stand before God in that judgment in your own self, you will be condemned to eternal destruction in hell. But the good news of the Gospel is that Christ already endured our wrath in the cross. So so that someday, you can stand before God someday, not in your own righteousness, but in His. And so so you don't have to be terrorized by that, or, or, or just hope that you make it through that day. No, you can approach that day with security and certainty, because you are safe in Christ. You are covered by the blood of the Son, and your sins are removed. And so if you have never believed on Christ for salvation, don't just go out of here today, forget about this, and do your own thing. Don't make sure that you leave knowing you are safe in Christ, that you are ready to stand before the Lord. Because it will happen. And it is far more important than anything else that may weigh on you today. And if you are saved, 
Praise God that you are safe from wrath. That the reality of God's judgment is not something that, that terrorizes you. But the Scriptures are also clear that we have our own day of accountability coming. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul, talking of himself and talking to fellow believers, says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body. So the Bible is clear. That even those of us who are Christians are someday going to stand before the Lord and we are going to give an account of everything that we have done. The deeds done in the body. We are going to reflect on, on what we did and what we didn't do. And Christ is going to reward us for our service or we may at times, as the Scriptures say, suffer loss. And, and I want to be clear here that, that, that fear of judgment should not be the primary motivation for why we serve God. I mean, we serve God fundamentally. We worship Him because He is worthy. He is worthy of worship. And because of everything that He has done for us. But 2 Corinthians 5 and plenty of other passages are also clear that that, that fact that I've got a day of accountability coming should weigh on me. You know, just like you know, when you're going to school, that test at the end of the week makes you think a little bit differently about your homework, or at least it should. And so the fact that I have a day of accountability coming should weigh on me, and, and, and I, uh, I should be committed to the fact that I don't want to stand before Christ someday ashamed of all the ways that I should have served Him, of all the ways that I, that I, I failed to use His gifts and His opportunities. No, I want to prepare well. So, so that when I stand before Him someday, it is a, do- it is a day of joy and, and gratitude where I can, I can say to the Lord, look at what I did in service to you because I love you and because of your grace and your kindness. And, and the Scriptures teach that it can be a day of incredible joy and incredible uh, happiness and reward by the grace of God and by Spirit-inspired effort. So, so folks, Jesus is coming again. The Bible is clear. History is clear. And so let's prepare well for that day. Let's make sure that we are ready to stand before the Lord and do so with joy and confidence. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and to thank you for the necessary reminders and exhortations that are embedded in it. And Father, I pray uh, for any who are here with us today that have not received Jesus as Savior. Oh, Father, we pray that today they would get that settled. And they would make sure that they know You, that they are in Christ, and they are safe. And Lord, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, help us to prepare well for the day that we see Christ. Help us to walk in the grace and in the strength and in the power that Christ gives in the Gospel. And Father, I pray that that we would all prepare well to hear well done, good and faithful servant when we stand before You. And so God, help us to to stay anchored to Your Word. Help us to, to walk with confidence and security in what You have said. And Father, we pray that the hope of eternity would shape 
how we think about every aspect of life today. In Christ's name, amen.